This episode of It's Alive Podcast is brought to you by... VHS Clamshell Solutions is your number one supplier for all your VHS clamshell needs. No matter the size or quantity, we are your only 2017 VHS clamshell supplier this side of the Rockies. Visit us at myspace-lovethatclam.com for our latest supply of clamshells. Seriously, we are overstocked. Please help. VHS Clamshell Solutions. Did this year's Halloween leave a mess in your trousers? Well, trick your treat with Phantom Reliever Toilet Paper for a clean, comfortable feel. Phantom Reliever Toilet Paper, supplier of mummy costumes for the underprivileged since 1985. Available at Shovel's Pharmacy and Barry Muck's Towel Outlet and more. It's showtime. I am Dracula. What's the boogeyman? It's just swimming with bow-legged women. Happy Halloween! <laughs> it's alive! It's alive! It's alive! weeks ago i gave you a bunch of stuff and you looked around your apartment frantically <laughs> and you said oh i have something for you too that's so true it, it's a little plastic ghost that lights up and makes classic halloween spook noises Wait, chris always gives me like framed canvases <laughs> he gave me like an 80 dollar undertaker wrestlemania painting i gave him a dollar store <laughs> led ghost i'm in a recession okay Personal no, I loved it. I love I love cheap little gifts like that. It's my favorite thing. Fuck you, it's not cheap. Little, I love little treats like that. And you found that at the dollar store. Yeah, a couple, I want to say almost a month ago. Along with those LED ghosts, I bought these really cool cardboard coffins that you can put treats in it. Like maybe uh, if you're having a party, you can put like nuts in it. Perhaps some candy corn. 
Mm, yeah, candy corn. But the thing with candy corn is people only bite the tips. A lot of people hate candy corn. I am not a fan of candy corn because I don't like things getting stuck in my teeth in the back. Uh, I have that problem with Skittles. Starburst, I lost a tooth on. That happened to me with a Lunchables nacho chip. How did you lose? That's like the weakest chip. Welcome to It's Alive, episode 14. As we are recording live from the crypt, as always, I am Chris. I am Eric, a.k.a. Sad Dracula. And, and we completely forgot our yes. one-year anniversary that happened two months ago. But here we are on yeah, our 14th I mean, month anniversary. I'm proud of it. That's all I got to say. Yeah. Who cares? I thought, well, I thought it was in August, so I went to the website and I checked when our first first episode was posted which i wouldn't recommend listening to and it was posted the in early first june episode is so nauseating we're keeping it because it's a milestone every episode beyond one is a milestone for us we, we're progressing it's our only podcast episode one was our first podcast episode two was our second podcast i mean it was my do you see the math behind that episode one is episode one episode two is episode two stick with us we're moving a little bit too fast, I think. Speaking of moving, what we did a little bit of segue. See, hold on. This is what I'm talking about. This next... is what I'm talking about. We're so stilted. Speaking of chocolate, ice well, cream. I'm trying to move on because what else can we talk about yeah. with this? Let's Nothing. talk about Suspiria. Roses are red, violets are blue, but the iris is a flower that will mean the end. Two weekends ago was the 2017 Flashback Weekend held in Rosemont, Illinois, which is probably, what, the biggest horror convention, would you say, in in Illinois, Chicago area? Currently standing, I would say it's the biggest horror convention in uh, Chicago. We did our review of last year, we went again this year, and we started off Friday. They had a screening of Suspiria, 4K Restoration. restoration screening of Suspiria at the movie theater near the convention. You didn't have to buy a weekend pass or anything special like that. You just had to buy tickets to the screening. The 4K restoration of Dario Argento's Suspiria met all expectations and beyond. Yes. What's your history with Suspiria, Eric? So after film school, I worked on Nightmare on Elm Street, the remake. So I met a guy as an extra. Went to film school like 10 years before me, he gave me a uh, DVD copy of one of his short films he made. And he's like, oh, this was inspired by Suspiria slash Dario Argento. All I know is (laughs) Spielberg and Tarantino. And I watched it, and I'm like, wow, that's an insane short film. You know, when you go to film school in your early 20s, everything that you do will be, or attempting to be, Tarantino. You know, that's just like kind of the go-to thing. And after that, you know, the next day we met on set um, at one of the hospitals downtown. I just unloaded with questions. I said, I mean, who the hell is this Argento guy? Blah, blah, blah. So he said, watch. So watch the Mother's Trilogy and start with Suspiria because that's the first film. And after that, I mean, this was what, 2008, 2009? After that, I was introduced to uh, pretty much the Argento saga. (laughs) You'd seen the movie prior and you're a fan of it, I know. 
Um, yeah, I saw the movie like four times. I know I mean you. Okay, so I seen it one. My story is I just seen it at a Halloween party with me years ago. Yeah, a little Halloween party you threw years ago. I seen like maybe thirty minutes of it, and it held my attention. Wrong. But the room was kind of yeah, in more of a goofy, non-sexual, horny mood. <laughs> and and non-sexual horny is trademarked by Chris and Eric. By the way, <laughs> we were messing around. Everybody was messing around and having a good time. Famous Halloween orgy. Yeah. So, that, I mean, I was intrigued by it, but I never went back to see it. And so, essentially, this is my first time really seeing it. And it was an amazing first way to see it. If, if you've never seen the movie before, this was the way to do it. And I'm the, so glad I spent that, what, 10 bucks to see it? That's the best 10 bucks ever spent. And I'm telling you, we've seen a couple restoration films. I mean, everyone's seen, you know, TCM, Texas Chainsaw Restoration, etc. But seeing this in the theater, this restoration, this 4K, visually mind-blowing but if you're a fan of this movie you know goblin and i know a few of y'all seen goblin live but hearing goblin with this restoration was absolutely mind-blowing the intro in the airport scene yeah oh my that me and chris just looked at each other and we're like holy shit this is insane the whole movie due to that music and cinematography and the lighting especially it's so um off-putting and it's so it's an uncomfortable ride that you take the colors especially i mean obviously that's that's something that a lot of people always talk about it, well, that's what makes it, argent- it like, that what, yeah. that's what makes our gentle and our gentle film that whole package well i'm not in i'm not i'm speaking as like a, a virgin an argento virgin it's the stylized vision that he has for all of his movies that movie came out in 77 and when we saw it yes the actors and and the the dubbing and all that stuff is dated but with the restoration it was so crisp and clean oh, and yeah. fresh it's hard to tell the difference so all in all i would say that was a good night and it was a great way to kick off weekend. our flashback weekend yes i noticed something though that really irritated me the first of many i can't help it i don't know there's something wrong with my irritable sensibilities <laughs> so you had all these hardcore horror fans there and during the movie the people in the front and some people on the and to the right of us fell asleep i looked on i remember you mentioned that and i looked on our row and i noticed like two people sleeping after the movie they're all clapping and oh that was a great movie you know that was great oh i love horror oh blood and guts yeah dude you were sleeping stop putting on some fake face and just say you didn't like the movie yeah i thought that was that was pretty funny i mean it was a 10 30 showing yeah it was pretty late was, but yeah. but i mean shit man i go to sleep at like 9 p.m i get up at 5 in the morning every morning I go to sleep at 9 p.m. And I was up during it. That's true. I work 90-hour weeks. That movie held my attention, and I was on the edge of my seat. I was having a great time. If you're here, you're supposed to be a fan of fans. This is supposed to be your thing. And I understand, yeah, if you're sleeping towards it, it just goes it's just, into the, it kind of seems it's disrespectful. It's the same thing with people getting classic Universal Monster tattoos and not knowing jack shit about the fucking movies. You know, the whole Bride of Frankenstein having the monster and the bride as a loving couple completely opposite like you said before Chris yeah, yeah. completely opposite that's a huge of, pet peeve of mine right it's not a love story she fucking hated the monster and then Frankenstein's monster killed, killed her killed everybody anyways it was a good good Friday good way to kick off the horror weekend she's alive alive the bride of Frankenstein
Okay, I don't know about you, but I love going to conventions, all conventions, comic book, my needle and sewing convention. Yeah, oh well, yeah. And horror conventions. I love going on Sunday because if I go on Saturday and miss Sunday, I get this little weird anxiety slash depression because I feel like I missed out. Yeah. So Sunday is always the last day of the convention. So I feel like, hey, I was there when it closed. There's nothing more to miss. That's, That's true. why I like going on Sunday myself. Um, and it's cheaper to get in. The flashback weekend is held in the Crown Plaza Hotel in Rosemont. It takes up two ballrooms. One ballroom is a big vendor area where you could just basically walk around like a zombie and buy shit or not buy shit. And then the other ballroom is where you have your panels and Q&As and whatnot. And you go back and forth between rooms pretty much for hours on end. That's the convention in a nutshell. Here's my beef with that. Most of these things are at hotels, right? The layout of Flashback has been the same for God knows how long. The same vendors, fine. But it is so small and so contained and so repetitive that it's become boring. There is no reason for certain vendors and or certain sponsors to continue to take up the most space. That kind of sounds like, well, if they're sponsors, they're helping the convention. Yeah, I get that, fine. But open the doors for more opportunities. Flashback weekend has become so stale and repetitive because and of over it. And overpriced. That's that's more the vendor's fault than than the convention itself. I, it's affordable to get into. Oh, I don't right, right. About I've, the price. Seen, um, I've seen VHSs that I've bought for dollars, maybe two or three dollars, that people are selling for 17, 18 bucks. I'm yeah. not kidding. I'm not exaggerating. I understand yeah. that you're trying to get your money back, blah, blah, blah. But we used to go to, con- you mentioned this, we used to go to conventions to get a deal. And now it's the complete opposite. So my convention spiel, as somebody who goes to a ton of comic book conventions and, and stuff like that, how it used to be like 15 years ago is like you would go to a convention, pay 10, 20 bucks to get in depending on the size of the convention. And I would always hold off buying things all year, comic books, graphic novels, collectibles, things like that, because I would always go to these conventions because there's always deals, there's always sales going on. I noticed recently, ever since kind of the Marvel Cinematic Universe exploded and everything. Since Iron Man won. Since Iron Man, pretty much, and The Dark Knight and everything like that, everybody and their grandmother now loves comic books and they love superheroes. So then the prices for those conventions have not tripled, they've like quadrupled. They're charging vendors more money to have booths, which means they hike up their prices to the point where uh, there's no point in me going anymore. I'm going to pay $60 to get into what is essentially a comic book flea market to pay probably double or triple the price of what I could find it on eBay or at an actual store because, you know, they're going to slap a sticker on it telling me it's rare. That increases at a horror convention because a horror is a more contained genre and interest we want to continue going we really bumped heads and we're like okay we're going to be bitching i know that because we're kind of fed up and annoyed with you know the routine it takes us 15 to 20 minutes to walk through the whole convention yeah it takes us five minutes to get starry eyes over the celebrities we want something new and we thought what could make flashback weekend and or any horror convention better So one of the things that we talked about, Chris, was having more interactive experiences, if that makes any sense. I was saying that 
it should be more of a convention feel and not more of a flea market feel. And I was saying with that, you have some very talented artists that make masks and special effects and whatnot. Why not have a few demonstrations? Why not have face painters? Why not have a DJ? It was awkwardly quiet in there. And there's a low murmur. You know, there's no fucking atmosphere. So over in Los Angeles, California, they were having a Scare LA Halloween convention. Um, happening the exact same weekend. And I watched and I shared it with Eric because I'm like, check out this convention. And man. After seeing Scare LA summer convention, you know, the horror convention they have there in LA, it was it was mind blowing. There was presentations. There, there was there, there was, was shows. There was a ton of there were special vendors and actors. For, right. There were special effects uh, creators for Halloween props. They had a corn. They had a corn maze in there. They had little Halloween attractions that that you could. They sample. had haunted houses, mini haunted houses within the convention. Oh yeah. He he seen some kind of weird uh, like gymnast show that was all horror themed right there there was a uh yes like old circus show yes i forget what they're called that would be an experience i would glad flashback weekend i know you're not listening but <laughs> i would gladly pay an extra 10 to 20 dollars if you made flashback weekend more interactive more classes more panels not just for horror movies but for special effects for props, for makeup, for art. I'm a shitty artist. Chris is a, is a professional artist. I would love to know how to draw a fucking classic ghost. <laughs> a fucking sheeted ghost. Show me how. I would love that. I would love an art in art gallery where where yes. guests where guests enter their own and I and I Facebook message both the Days of the Dead convention and flashback about it, saying that they should host an art gallery because famous monsters of Filmland convention in Texas this year did that where you could submit an art piece and they would basically have a fan art contest. I said art why don't contest, you why don't, yeah, why don't you guys do that? You know? I as mean, far as guests, it's awesome having actors and everything like that, but I would much rather have panels with creators and screenwriters and composers I mean, horror, behind the scenes behind it's, the it's, scenes it's awesome it's awesome hearing heather Landenkamp talk about nightmare on elm street but to me it would be much more cooler to hear the guy who did freddy's makeup, makeup. yes or why not like tap into horror comics you know and that makes, it's more than movies horror is more than movies you have vendors there that make their own art make their own short films make their own uh, t-shirts, why not give them the stage to present their craft and their knowledge and their experience? Because we would much rather hear some advice, the behind the scenes and experiences from somebody who's just a normal horror fan like us, but who has a hobby of creating, makes his own films. Or t-shirts. Or t-shirts or 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 artwork or masks. I'd like to hear his experiences. Give him a panel. Give him a stage. Give him a spotlight, essentially. Yeah. Why not Why not have a film festival? Why can't Flashback Weekend give out awards for short horror films? I mean, literally, have your guidelines. Two minutes only. It would be so easy for you guys to do that. The costume contest is cool. Why don't yeah. we add on to that? Have Spengooly... He introduces movies, right? That's what everybody knows Spengooly for. Have him introduce the films and and doing the costume contest or something you know what i mean one costume contest and then boom a short film costume contest short film back and forth it could be managed it's it's not as hard as you think and i feel like flashback weekend is afraid of change you can do change at a low budget 
Treat the convention like a small independent film, you'll be okay. It's awesome to have Robert England there every couple years. That's freaking awesome. Why wasn't Robert England at a panel every single day? Okay, you offer Robert England money, okay? I know you want to respect him and etc. But think about it, Chris. You offer him fucking $10,000 to do this, he'll say yes, then give him guidelines. He knows how much money he makes. Come on. I mean, give him a panel. I want to know more about him. If we inserted a lot more creativity into the con instead of kind of going by the numbers. And there's no reason for Saturday to be the only time you screen films throughout the convention. Make me want to buy that weekend pass. I mean, do you think other horror conventions have a problem, or do you think other horror fans care about this? Because I see the comments, and I don't really see anybody... I love that everyone's it or having, anything. Right, so a lot of like newbies that go to these things, they love it. I'm glad that they, they did, and they should love it, because there's never a truly sour experience at yeah. these conventions. It's just that if you keep going, you want more. And I hope all you flashback weekenders want more. It's good right now, but imagine what it could be. You know, so if you they jack up the ticket prices, five, ten bucks, and they get all that money and they do their books right, and the next couple years they can actually get Dario Argento here, or they can get John Carpenter here. Yeah. I would be willing to put in to get more. In that city, hands, Mr. Hooper. You've been counting money all your life. All right, all right. Hey, I don't need this. I don't need this working-class hero crap. You, you, you're not going to do this aboard the ship, are you, Mr. Quinn? Maybe I should go alone. All right, well, that, that sounded really... That sounded really bad. That sounded really negative, now that I think about it. It's not negative. We're just... We want... We have expectations, and we actually care about Flashback Weekend. It's called passion, folks. If Nick DiGilio literally duplicated himself and did everything <laughs> the <laughs> it would be the premier horror convention nick digilio he present basically presented most of the panels. and he's a legit fanboy when he presented these panels he's so in- engaging that so- man could sell snow to an eskimo so like last year he presented the don C- Cassarelli from last year go back to phantasm our, go back to our last episode on uh, a 2016 flashback and listen to that panel that we recorded with both Nick DiGilio and Don Cassarelli. Talk about a a great informative panel to go to. Completely sold, not a Phantasm fan, completely sold me on Phantasm as one of the best movies ever made. (laughs) Nick DiGilio's energy was so authentic and his experience watching it really bled into the, the audience at that panel, including us. For him to be involved he's he's a flagship piece to flashback and he needs to be given all the trophies (laughs) he should (laughs) he had so much to the convention because he's just he's an articulate passionate horror fan what i think that's what the genre needs more of so that's definitely a big positive when it comes to flashback but the panels that we had on sunday because we've been we're not trying to be negative like we said we're just trying to give honest feedback and pointers on how to improve this convention that we've been going to for for quite some time so on sunday we were able to go to a bunch of really good panels three of them were good two of them were good two of them were good two of them were very good the other one was kind of odd yeah (laughs) it was odd so the first panel that we went to was a nightmare the women of nightmare on elm street panel which included heather langdon camp 
Amanda Weiss, and Ronnie Blakely. Ronnie Blakely! <laughs> I thought it was a decent panel. It was a really good panel. I don't think it was just a decent panel. It was really good. And the reason why is I truly felt that we received fresh information from the inside of the horror world. So why don't we go ahead and play that panel? Do you think we... Yeah. We could play it? And then we're going to discuss Our microphones, like I always say, are everywhere. And sometimes we can't find them. This is the Nightmare on Elm Street panel with Heather Langdenkamp, Amanda Weiss, and Ronnie Blakely. I would love to start off by hearing about where your careers were before Nightmare on Elm Street and then how everything changed after Nightmare on Elm Street. So Heather, if we could start with you, I'm just really curious as to what this film did for you and how everything sort of shifted in your life. I got my SAG card in Tulsa, Oklahoma. I was uh, extra on a Francis Ford Coppola movie called well, first, The Outsiders, and then I got a speaking part in Rumblefish where I got my SAG card, which I didn't realize how lucky I was because it's very hard to get a SAG card if you're in Los Angeles and just starting out. So I went to college, and I, I was at Stanford, and I decided, well, you know, I have this SAG card. I'll just go to L.A. and just see um, if I can get some auditions. And I had a wonderful friend who was a casting director who helped me get a couple of parts, so I did a TV movie of the week. I did some commercials, a tab commercial. I remember <laughs> when tab existed. And um, I wasn't making a lot of money. I was able to barely kind of support myself with the help from my dad. He gave me a little bit of money. And I went down to LA just for auditions. And finally, I got an independent feature that I thought to myself, well, maybe I have a, a future if I just kind of stick to it. So. Um, after that movie, I went back to school. You know, I, I would fly down to Los Angeles for auditions, but it wasn't like I had a, a very good a career going. And then I got Nightmare on Elm Street, which I think it was supposed to start shooting originally like in May, or, or it was supposed to start like in the spring, April, May of that year. So I actually like left college, and I'm waiting for the movie to start, waiting for the movie to start, and it actually doesn't start until June. And um, so we shot it over the summer, but I went immediately back to school, and then the movie um, came out, and you know, you're not gonna believe this, but absolutely nothing happened. I mean, I mean we, nobody really ever saw this movie until VHS came out. I mean, it was good in the theaters. I mean, kids around America went and saw the film, but that was pretty much it. You have to realize back then you couldn't just plug in a movie to watch it because you felt like it and it didn't play on television. So once it was released, it was gone. And very few people, I would go on many, many auditions and people had not seen the film. And so, you know, I would put it on my reel so they would see a few scenes. But in general, I never met anybody who saw Nightmare on Elm Street for many, many years, like maybe six years after the movie was made. And then people would say, oh, I saw you in that movie why did you do a horror movie? And then I'd be like, well, you know, just paying the rent. And so the stigma to horror movies I felt was really strong. So, you know, it was on the bottom of my resume in very small writing for many years. And then I think, you know, Wes did, I mean, wrote Nightmare 3, and that movie was so successful that horror started kind of inching up in, in popularity. But still, I mean, I've never gotten a job because I was in Nightmare on Elm Street. I can even pretty much say that today. So. I mean, no, I mean, it was not, I mean, it wasn't the gravy train that I wish it had been, that's for sure. 
but nowadays, because everyone loves the movie so much, I get asked now to participate in people's movies because I'm Nancy. So that's always flattering. And But mainstream Hollywood didn't really pay attention like I thought they would. How about for you, Amanda? I did. I started out in theater and I did these two plays that were sort of a harbinger of, harbinger of horror. I did The Innocence and The Bad Seed when I was 11 and 12 um, in a theater in Los Angeles. And the LA Times said that I was one of the most wicked children they've ever seen. <laughs> and so I was like, oh, there's something going here. And so I did that and then as a teenager I did a bunch of commercials. I was like the California girl with long blonde hair. Did a, commercials and then a few TV things and then I did Fast Times at Ridgemont High and then I got I got to read for Nightmare on Elm Street. So I'd had a few things, mostly commercials and some t I'd done a couple TV pilots and episodics. I did do a fun, my first movie that I ever did, I was a teenager, it was called Force 5 and it was by Robert Klaus who had directed Enter the Dragon. So I was super excited because I was, I'm, my guilty pleasure are martial arts films. <laughs> Just get West had Heather and I read together and got cast and it was really fun but I was really only there yeah I wasn't there through the whole filming but it was amazing made lifelong friends and but pretty much the same thing that Heather said um, as far as career-wise nobody casting directors and directors and networks because I was doing a lot of television at the time they had never heard of it or seen it and and um, so it didn't really I did the same thing. I was like, oh, I was in this horror film. And now I'm like, yeah, I was in this horror film. But um, it was interesting because business-wise, people didn't respect the horror genre like they do now. Like, I think now it's a bona fide. Yeah, and genre that, that people respect and that, that it's well-directed, well-written, and all that, that, like how Wes always was. But So it didn't really do anything for my career afterwards. I still just, like, plugged along and plotted and, like, on my way to just keep it all going but um but now like older the same thing like more people are asking me to participate in their films because of having been in Nightmare on Elm Street so I'm super grateful for it it just but yes it didn't it wasn't like we were in Wonder Woman and all of a sudden it's like they're stars people were like you were in what and so yeah so I know it, it was a very strange thing but now people respect it as it should be so it's nice for you, Ronnie? Hi, well, I'm older than the girls and played Heather's mom, Marge, in Nightmare One. And most of my career, a great deal of my career was behind me. My big thing had been that I'd been nominated for an Academy Award for the movie Nashville, Robert Altman's movie. And that had resulted in me being on the cover of Newsweek and traveling the world. That was a hit but it was not as big a hit as Nightmare on Elm Street. But also I had done The Driver with Walter Hill. I had worked with the vendors on three movies. I had worked with Sam Shepard on a, on a show uh, for Hammett, the movie Hammett. Uh, Sam and I played opposite one another. I had worked with Bob Dylan on his records and tours and, and a movie called Rinaldo and Clara. So I had done a lot, or whatever, maybe some don't think it's that much, but I had done what I had done and done television shows too, and television movies and theater. So I had started in 1968 when I got out of Juilliard. I started in Summerstock, and that's where I got my first card was an equity card. 
then I went moved to New York and went into electronic music with Gershon Kingsley and Mo and the Mo and Robert Moog who made Moog synthesizers. And was in Carnegie Hall with Moog synthesizers. And then I, I remember I moved to LA on David Crosby's yacht. I joined a band called California and we did uh, the title song to the Columbia movie April Fools. And then I I think then I got oh then I got a writing deal at AM. Then I got my first record deal from that, from the songs in that, which they desired to use in Nashville, the movie, which they did use, about six of my songs. And Susan Ansbach was playing the part that I ended up playing, but they decided to have me instead. So that started my movie career. And so John Saxon, who played my husband and Nancy's father in Nightmare, was, you know, they called us veteran actors. And then they used us, John first and me second, to finance the movie for under two million. And they were always afraid somebody was gonna pull the plug. I remember taking my mother to Palm Springs to show her the script because, you know, this was a dicey kind of a shocking type of movie. So I wanted to warn her about it. She was, nice, she was a very nice Christian lady. I didn't want to blow her socks off. But, uh, I, Mom, I'm, you know, I think I'm going to do this movie. And she read it. And she was, oh. I said, well, I think it's going to be a hit. I remember telling that to my mom before we ever did it. So I did have some sense of it because I told Mom I'm doing it because I think it's going to be a hit. Then Heather and I worked together before we shot. You know, we made mother-daughter scenes. And I realized something this morning that I wanted to tell you, but I'll just tell you now. I think my daughter based her relationship with me on Nancy. I think that's why she bosses me around. You know, the teenage thing, and you know, the mother trying to protect, but you know, blundering. And anyway, you know, we had fun. We really did. It made Heather a huge star. And oddly enough, I think it went to number one. I think, you know, when you guys say it didn't make that big a splash, I think Nightmare on Elm Street was number one. It made a ton of money. I was saying it didn't make a splash in my career personally. Not I don't that the understand money, why. Not that the movie didn't make a splash. It seems like it did. I think that a lot of, like my agents, were biggest agents in town, you know, William Morris and, you know, the big agents. And I would repeatedly go in there to meet, and they're like, yeah, I'm so sorry I didn't see it. You know? And he's like, you know, that's just not my kind of movie I want to go see. I'm like, I'm your client. That's what you're doing. We were with the same agent. We were with the same agent. Two of their people were in the movie, and, and not one it. of them saw the movie. <laughs> and and they, they, were, they were like the biggest agents in the city at the time. It could have really helped us by, you know, right. well, we left that agency. Yeah. Well, but, yeah. I saw it in Times Square. Have I told you this story <coughs> a million times? Yes. yes. <laughs> okay, well, I saw it in Times Square, you know, where it was up on the billboards. It was number one, and there was a Kentucky Colonel right mm -hmm. next to the theater. So everybody in the theater was eating chicken. So you could hear the rustling of all these bags, you know, Russell, 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 then ah! Russell, 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 then ah! So anyway, I saw with the theater full of people. 
eating Kentucky Colonel. And they loved it. It was sold out. I saw it in Oakland at a theater. It was probably like 80% African American, 20% white. In Oakland? In Oakland. And um, everyone was talking at the screen the whole time. Yes, they were like, yeah. Mar, you get that, you get that bottle. You get that bottle. You get that bottle. Look at that. And it was hilarious. But I didn't catch all the subtle lines, you know, beneath. Everyone was so loud. So then later I went and I saw it. I finally watched it all the way through for the first time, <laughs> sitting between these two here in Chicago at the outdoor theater ten years ago, because I could never keep my eyes open when Amanda's bag got dragged out and the worm crawled out, and when Johnny got bloodied up to pieces in his room, and you know, and these things with Heather, all the you know. I had to shut my eyes. I tried not to let anybody know, but I sat there like this and just went. <laughs> so nobody would make fun of me. And now I finally could watch it, sitting between the two of them. That was the best. That was the best time I've ever watched it, was sitting between the two girls. I was actually here for that yeah, screen. Yeah, it was great, because you guys were yelling at the screen and stuff, too, which was really fun. It really was. It was the best. Uh, can you share with us your favorite West memory? And if, for Heather, I know you worked with him a few times, so it doesn't even necessarily have to be on this movie. You know, I, I knew him in various stages of his life, and my husband actually knew him as well on Serpent in the Rainbow, because they lived in Haiti together for a few months while they made Serpent in the Rainbow. So he, yeah, so Wes, to me, was always very, like, professional and fatherly. Like, he, I don't think he ever wanted to cross the line to seem untoward or weirder, like so many directors can be when you're dealing with an 18-year-old girl. So um, he was always just so, you know, more like an uncle or a father to me. And and then when I talked to my husband, who worked with him only maybe a year later, I mean, he was a wild man. He was like, <laughs> no, that's they, like I, story I mean, they were having a blast, night, late night parties, partying all night, everyone's dreaming a lot and having just so much fun, and I felt so jealous. Like, <laughs> why well, don't have any stories like that? Yeah. Mine are always like we're having a you know an intellectual talk about something, <laughs> and, or you know he was very concerned about just our popular culture because he always was out an outsider to it. I mean, he grew up in a way that was so conservative Christian, always looking into our American society, always feeling like he was sitting on the outside looking in. And even as a man who was like had Hollywood in the palm of his hand, he was always kind of an awkward member of our pop culture world. He always wanted to be an observer of it. And so when, whenever I would get together with him, we would just talk about our observations of the world as it is. And, and his observations were always, you know, they were kind of pessimistic. They he didn't have a lot of hope like that kids were gonna find the proper way out of this mess that their parents had created for them, and it very much like the metaphor of Nightmare on Elm Street. Like, you really felt like teenagers have, were being given a really raw deal, and, and that whole Freddy metaphor is so much bigger than Nightmare on Elm Street for him. And the last meeting that I had with him, I actually interviewed him for my documentary, and he was really frightened about our technological dependence and kids 
believing that your personality can be garnered from your phone. And so we had, you know, our conversations were always really deep. They were really scary and like really scary. And I think that he was a gifted enough artist that he could take all of that and put it into his art form. No party, no party stories for me. <laughs> I don't have any party story, stories either. It, it, professionally, Wes was, it treated me similar to Heather. He was very avuncular in a way and studious and respectful and he was like a teen whisperer though. That's a great way to put it. Like he really knew, because he could be kind of intimidating. I mean, I didn't know him obviously that well when we first started working with him. And he's a very imposing intellectual, yeah, quiet man, but he would be able to talk to us in a way that was really like, oh yeah, I got this. And so I, I that's really what I think about him because I didn't really have a relationship with him after the film. So I never got to have great conversations with him or anything yeah. like that. Yeah, yeah, so, um, but he always treated me with great respect. But I think he observed teenagers. Yeah. Like, he never was a teenager. I mean, he carried a Bible to college with and him, you know, around campus. That's where he came from. And, and he wasn't allowed to watch television or movies. So imagine being that guy. He's just watching teenagers having fun everywhere around him and talking and their mode of speech and the way they hang on each other and the way they share. And he didn't get to participate in that. So I think his observations about teenagers is what made him be able to say to me and Mandy, like, you know, this is a summer party. You guys are, like, you guys are going to really make fun of Johnny Depp because he's totally, like, almost getting in really bad trouble. And you guys are having innocent fun. But it always was to me like he had seen that somewhere. He had observed it, and he was telling us to recreate something he had seen but never done, you know, that kind That's of thing. That's exactly right. And you know, Robert had told us that, remember that he, that Wes had spent his entire adult life trying to catch up on all the movies that he had right. seen growing up and all right. that. Right. And that's a picture that stays, always stayed in my head because of how he was brought up as a I, I really wish we had like another half an hour or like three hours. I feel like, especially my your stories are blowing my mind this morning. Oh, um, but because I'm so old. Oh, no, 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 no. you just been part of a lot of really great stuff. But I want to thank Heather and Amanda and Ronnie for being here today and sharing stories with us. Thank you. Um, all. Let's give out. So, what stood out of this panel for you? What was some information that you got that you didn't know before? So Ronnie Blakely stood out in this panel. Ronnie Blakely played Nancy's mother mm -hmm. in the original Nightmare on Elm Street. So Ronnie Blakely, as you heard, toured with Bob Dylan during his Desire album release. He did the Rolling Thunder Review tour, and that blew my freaking mind. You heard her. She 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 was on a boat with with the half of the Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young group. Basically, every time she opened her mouth, she just showed how much more interesting she was <laughs> than she, everyone she's else. A, she is literally a Hollywood icon, and no one knows it. No. Because how do you compare, yeah, I did a movie, a horror movie, to, yeah, I toured with fucking Bob Dylan? You can't. So And she won, didn't she win like a Golden Globe and shit? I, she was nominated for an Academy Award, I think. I yeah, don't remember. She, yeah, she was legit. Yeah, she's got her credentials. You would never know. She looks like that crazy aunt yeah. during the Christmas party that you don't go to. But the, the thing that really made me and Chris look at each other and make out was... Which I don't believe. Heather Landenkamp said that nothing happened to her career after 
Nightmare on Elm Street came out. She said that Nightmare on Elm Street only bubbled and exploded during the VHS era. The quote that really surprised me was when she said that Nightmare on Elm Street only really got popular five years after it was released. Looking back at all these documentaries that we saw, all these special features, that completely contradicts everything (laughs) that everybody said about Nightmare on Elm Street. Yeah. But that little bit of information that Nightmare on Elm Street didn't do shit for her career and didn't do shit until it came out on VHS was really shocking. Do you think she just throws fake monkey wrenches into the crowd just to fuck with them? Think about doing these Q&As. You think they like doing it? Talking about the same shit, you know what I mean? They're getting paid for it. I mean, it's better than selling bubblegum surfing carts. (laughs) Is it, though? (laughs) I don't know. Ask Heather. (laughs) Literally, you tried to call her and talk about it. See, I don't understand. Nightmare made 25 and a half million bucks. Heather said all that, and then Ronnie came right back and completely shattered. As you heard in the interview, yeah. Shattered her words. So I don't know if it's just a uh, false memory or what, but I thought that was—I thought that was interesting, personally. The kids of Elm Street don't know it yet, but something is coming to get them. There's something out there, isn't there? No one knows where it came from or who it will visit next. Nightmare on Elm Street. Craven's Nightmare on Elm Street, rated R. Let's talk about one of the most surprising and probably the best panel of the day, which was with Victoria Price, horror legend Vincent Price's daughter. Something that we said, oh yeah, let's stay for this, this might be interesting, ended up being the coolest panel. Mr. Price passed away a long time ago, so it's really cool to see and hear stories from people that engage with him especially his daughter ronnie blakely is the crazy aunt vincent price's daughter is that cool aunt with tattoos and short hair and loafers because she is homeless yeah that was that that was something to hear vincent price's daughter is homeless technically she just travels the world sharing her story very active in the you know the feminist pro-women community which is awesome she's very positive she's very uh down to earth and she has a great message so let's delve a little bit into that positive attitude we're talking about and some awesome behind the scenes and personal stories about the man himself vincent price we're gonna play some exclusive audio from victoria price's panel from the flashback weekend right now i mean he was so unscary except the one time that my mother told him to spank me. And I was like, oh my God. And I started to run away from him. And I'm running, running, running away from him. And I'm figuring in my little seven-year-old mind, you know, I'm young, he's like 55 years old. Easily I can outrun him. And I'm going down this long hall in our house and I turn around and I see Vincent Price. (laughs) And I'm like, oh, that's what everyone's talking about. That's scary. (laughs) Not the one time he ever scared me. That's great. you grew up in a very creative um, household, and you took from that because you ended up becoming uh, an interior designer and you worked in the art world. Yep. And right now, I just want to mention before we get to all the stories about your dad, and there are a million stories, you are currently just traveling. 
Yep. You don't have an address. I don't. And you're putting it all on your on your website. Yep. And, and it's fascinating stuff. It's really beautiful. When did you decide to? Because you were in New Mexico for a while. You were yep. teaching. Yep. And you decided to just kind of give all that up and just go. What? Tell me about that. Be crazy. Yeah. Well, actually, it was one of those moments in your life where you look at yourself in the mirror and you think, if I don't show up to my own life pretty soon, you know, it's going to be too late. And it was a month before my 49th birthday. And I realized that I'd done everything right, and I was really unhappy. And it would happen to be 2011, which was the year my dad would have turned 100. So it was the Vincentennial. And uh, there were all these events all over the world, so I started going to them, and that's when I actually started to meet horror fans. And I looked out at all the horror fans I was meeting, and I kept doing conventions after that. And I realized that I was learning something from all of you guys. You know, I grew up in this town where, which is Hollywood, where you were taught to try to be, you know, sort of a, a, an image a, a, of yourself. You're supposed to try to be something out in the world. And I never felt like that. I never felt like I fit in. I always felt like an outsider. I just knew how to pass. And I looked at myself in the mirror and then I started meeting horror fans and I thought, I want to be like them. They come to these conventions and they're really who they are. And they show up as who they are in their hearts and they have a whole tribe of people that they get along with. And I'm sitting here trying to do everything right and I'm miserable. And that's when I started to change my life and actually it was the, the horror fans who really changed that for me. So last year I started this two year stint of intentional homelessness and I have a book coming out in February. It's called The Way of Being Lost. And it's actually about how sometimes you have to get lost to all the world's ideas of what you should be and show up as your true self. And uh, actually, that's part of why I really love horror fans, because you guys come and you show up as your true selves. And I'm learning how to do that, too. Wow. You. That's great. That's beautiful. So the, you started this on your, on your father's 100, what would have been his 100th yep. birthday. And I do want to mention this, in case people don't know this. I mentioned this to you, and you obviously know this. I don't know if you guys know this or not, but Vincent Price, uh, Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee were born within one day. Who was born on the same day as your dad? Chris. Chris uh, Christopher Lee and then uh, Peter Cushing was born the day before. Mm -hmm. um, and so these are the three, I mean, that's it. They're, these are the titans. These are the three guys who mean everything to any horror fan. Uh, and the fact that they were born that close to them. And my dad was so cute. He, he, he said, it makes you believe in astronomy, doesn't it? And I was like... <laughs> Astrology, Dad, it's astrology. <laughs> so clearly he didn't really believe in astrology, but it was a good one. Um, your book, uh, Vincent Price, uh, A Daughter's Biography, is terrific. Thank um, you. I've read it twice. Thank and you. And it's got, if you guys, she's got it at her table. No, it's sold out. Oh, it's, oh, it's good. Left. It's sold out. Good. It was gone by yesterday. Morning. Oh, okay. Well, it's not there anymore. You missed <laughs> out. But you could probably get it online. You can get it online. Uh, it is a really, really wonderful book, a great portrait of uh, Vincent Price, but also a really great memoir of you, which I didn't expect. I didn't expect to learn as much about your dad, which I did, and as being a huge fan of your dad's. But I learned a lot about you, and I found you to be really just fascinating, Thank which you. is why I've been following you for all these years. Thank you. All that stuff. Um, tell me about the writing of the book when you decided to write the book about your dad. It's actually a great story. So a friend of mine said, because my dad at the end of his life, so my, my stepmother was the actress Coral Brown, and she died in 1991, and my dad had Parkinson's and emphysema and cancer, and but he was smart as a whip. We would play Jeopardy at night, and he would kick my butt. I mean, this man could beat me at any game. He was he remembered everything, and but his body was failing. And so this friend of mine said, you know, why don't you guys work on a book together, and why don't you work on a book about art? Because that was our mutual passion. And I said, oh God, you know, my brother's a writer. He's 22 years older than I am. And I said, 
my brother's been approached about writing a biography. My dad was like, nobody is gonna write my biography. And so I thought, he's gonna say no. She said, just ask. And so I said, so, you know, this friend of mine thinks we should write this art book to get, I got like that far in the sentence, he said yes. Um, and so for the last, well, for about nine months at the end of his life, I would go up to his house in the afternoons. I had this great job. I wrote in the afternoons and I worked in the mornings. And so I would go up three days a week and we would sit on his bed and we would talk about art. And it was just stream of consciousness. And, and of course it rambled on to all these other things and it ended up being the whole story of his life. And so I was actually in New York um, pitching it to publishers as an art book and I got the phone call that my dad was dying. And so I flew back to LA, I got the last flight out of New York, and it was actually a really beautiful moment. My dad's favorite place in the entire world was Rome, and I knew that he was going because he said to me, you know, I could die while you're gone, and I think he kind of wanted to, he didn't want to go with me there. And so I'm on the tarmac at JFK, and I look at the plane that's taking off right before me, and it's Alitalia, and I knew it was flying to Rome. And I just had this vision of my dad taking off like in his body before he left it and flying to all of his favorite places like London and ending in Rome. And so, um, and he died on the flight back. Um, it was in those days they still had phones on planes. I don't know when that stopped. And so I got the call on the plane and he, he died. And, um, but then every, all the publishers said, you know, we really want a biography. And I said, I don't know that much about horror films. They're all gonna laugh at me. All the horror fans are gonna laugh at me. And they said, yeah, but if you don't write this book, no one will know the other stuff. And uh, I thought that's true. Anybody can write a good book. I mean, a really good book about the, the movies, yeah. but this was all the other stuff about my dad's life. And there was so much more to your dad than just being the horror icon. Yeah. So much more. And you know, it's interesting during the latter part of his, the, the second half of his career, right around when you were born, actually. Mm -hmm. um, uh, he appeared on television a lot more, um, not just like as Egghead on Batman, but, right. but beyond that. And, and you got to see what an amazing cook he was, how smart he was, and the art lover that he was. I happen to be obsessed with old Johnny Carson reruns. Oh, cool. Obsessed. And he, he's appeared on Carson on oh, these yeah. reruns, and in every appearance that he has, no, not a mention of a horror movie comes up. Right. And it's all about, and it, I remember one segment that Johnny did with him that I just, loved he brought out these local pieces of art onto the stage and he had your dad talk about each one and kind of judge it uh. and it was this really wonderful thing that you know if you, if you only know vincent price from the horror movies when you see that you're like wow yeah and but you saw you knew that side of yeah it. no he was art was his passion he fell in love with the visual arts when he was eight years old he had an older sister who left behind an art book and he looked at this art book and he was like oh my god this is incredible so he was 12 years old he grew up in st louis missouri just down a little bit down from here, Midwestern boy, and his actually his his whole family was from Illinois. Uh, my great grandfather, so his grandfather invented baking powder, and they were based yeah, and they were yeah he invented baking powder, and he was based out of Waukegan, and uh, his business his offices were in Chicago, and when my great grandfather died, the Chicago Tribune wrote this huge obituary about him, and they called him the housewife's best friend because he had written four cookbooks. And he was this, you know, very famous household name, Dr. Vincent Clarence Price, Dr. Price's baking powder. And then his younger son moved to St. Louis and ran the largest candy company in the United States. And so um, my dad grew up in St. Louis and he was walking by this gallery and he saw something in the window and he thought it was the most beautiful thing he'd ever seen. And he walked in and he asked the gallery owner what it was and the guy said, well, it's a Rembrandt etching. 
And my dad said, how much is it? It was 1924, it was $37.50, which is a lot of money in 1924. And my dad said, I wanna buy it, how can I buy it? And that gallery owner, it's a, it's a lesson to us all when kids are fascinated by something, to encourage them, because the gallery owner didn't laugh at him. He said, okay, we'll work out a three-year payment plan. So every penny of his allowance for three years and odd jobs went toward this Rembrandt. He was 15 years old, he took possession of that Rembrandt. He was like, that's it, he became an art historian, he was on TV talking about art, he was really well known in the art world. And, and, and then, so if he was really, at that young age, he was obsessed with art. Um, tell everybody how he got into acting. Yeah, okay, so acting was totally a, a, a bet. <laughs> He, uh, he was in London, he was at the uh, University of London studying art history, and he basically went to see every play he could. He saw Gilgood's Hamlet eight times. And so he actually just got dared to try out for a play. And the play was called Chicago, and it was a very risque play, it had been banned in the United States, and it was the play on which the musical Chicago is based. And so he got cast as a gum-chewing cop because in England in those days, nobody chewed gum. So he knew how to walk and chew gum at the same time, and that's how he became an actor. It's <laughs> a great story. Um, you know, I, and, and I know that your dad worked on stage um, a lot, and um, I was watching an old, another, again, an old talk show. I was watching a Dick Cavett rerun from the early 70s, and he, they showed a clip of him as Oscar Wilde yeah. in the one-man show. Magnificent. That was the best thing I ever saw him do. Yeah. It was so it was a really interesting time. If you think about your horror fans, right? From the early 70s when he was making movies like Theater of Blood, Dr. Fives, by the late 70s we're moving into the more bloody horror phase and we're, and he wasn't getting cast as much and and frankly he was happy about it. He never liked the bloody horror movies. He thought our imaginations were far far scarier than anything you can see. That if we can't see it, what our imaginations think way scarier. And so he wasn't getting cast, and uh, and he really didn't want to do them. And so his wife, my stepmother, um, found this play for him to do, and it was a one-man show about Oscar Wilde at the end of his life. Now, it's 1977, and Anita Bryant is all over the airwaves, and she's denouncing homosexuality, and it's big news. So I think it was Johnny Carson or Dick Cavett, one of them, has my dad on the talk yeah, show. And that's exactly what they yeah. talk about. Yeah, and it was this amazing moment, because you know, here's my dad playing the most famous gay man in the world, and it's a very brave thing to do in 1977. And uh, Dick Cavett says, so what do you think about you know, Anita Bryant? And my dad had the great, great line. He said, oh yes, Miss Bryant, I think Oscar Wilde wrote a play about her, a woman of no importance. <laughs> and that's how he dealt with that. But you know, he became a real hero to the gay community, which was um, after that. Yeah. You were talking about towards the end of his life. Um, Edward Scissorhands, um, is it, you're in that film, aren't you? I am, yeah. yeah. Um, Edward Scissorhands is, a, I, it's a, first of all, I love that movie. And he's so beautiful in that movie. And I mean, just not just the performance, but like the, there's a close-up of him as Edward Scissorhands is sticking the blaze into him. It's just transcendent. It's it's one of my favorite moments of, of uh, one of my favorite close-ups in film history is of your dad. He looks so beautiful in that yeah. movie. And can you talk a little bit maybe about the relationship you have with Tim Burton? Yeah, absolutely. So first of all, you know, I I think Tim gave my dad this incredible gift. My dad had a 65-year career. He made 105 just movies. Forget tell. I mean, he made so many so many TV shows, 900 Hollywood squares alone. <laughs> um, 
And so at the end of his life, you know, so many actors just fade away. And, and Tim gave my dad his swan song. I mean, what an incredible part to be your last part. So my dad met Tim because he was doing a Disney TV show called Read, Write, and Draw. And it taught kids how to tell stories. And so he was told about this young Disney animator who was a huge fan. And uh, so my dad said, oh, I'll go down and meet him. Well, he fell in love with Tim's line drawings. They were just such beautiful, you know, black and white drawings. And my dad's passion was drawing. And so Tim told my dad about this little film he'd made about a little boy named Vincent Malloy who wants to grow up to be Vincent Price. And my dad agreed to narrate it, which you know blew Tim away to have your first movie narrated by your childhood idol. Yeah. But he has more than returned the favor, not only just with Edward Scissorhands, yeah. but by you know giving my dad sort of entree to a whole new generation. And it was such a wonderful experience for him because Johnny is also, Johnny Depp's also a Gemini, and so they would hang out in the trailer and recite poetry to each other. And it was a very special last film. And it, yeah, it's a really personal film for Burton too. Casting your father in that role, creating what Edward Scissorhands is sort of Tim Burton. And to have your father play the person that gives birth to that is just a really wonderful thing and a great salute to your father. And again, it's a magnificent performance. And I just, I love that movie. And I, I love, still I cry. Love it. Oh yeah, it's beautiful. It's, it's just absolutely beautiful. Okay, so you didn't grow up as a horror fan. Did you see any of his movies when you were young? No, you know, uh, the reason I didn't see any movies is because when I was four years old, like I didn't know what an actor did. And I went to a school with tons of actors' kids. I mean, like, you name it, <laughs> they were in my class, like Clark Gable's kid, you know, everybody's kids were in my class. But I didn't really know what an actor was, right? So my parents thought, well, we'll take her to this little children's play that my dad was in to see, you know, to see what an actor does. So my dad was in this play, it was a little play called Peter Pan, and my dad played Captain Hook. And I'm four years old, and you know, my mother was English, and she was like, uptight is not quite, you know, doesn't quite capture it. She was very, like no public displays of anything. And I saw my dad on stage with this hook doing mean things to kids, and I freaked out. And I wouldn't stop talking, I'm like, why does dad have a hook? Why, why is he being so mean? And I'm loud, you know, and my mother's like, oh my God. So she took me backstage during intermission and they had to like show me that the hook was okay. Well afterwards she's like, I'm not, I'm never doing that again. So they never let me see a movie, never. I saw all the TV shows like, you know, Mod Squad and Batman. So when I was 16, I was an exchange student living in Germany for a year and all of my dad's movies were on TV and that was the first time I saw them in German. Oh, so. So, that had to be odd. Yeah, it was definitely odd. Um, that, you know, seeing him in those circumstances. Yeah. Have you, you've seen them since. Obviously. I have seen them Okay, since. do you have some favorite performances? Of I, I love Theater of Blood. That's my favorite. Yeah. That's That and the Fives movies. Those yeah, are the, the Fives movies are great. They're fantastic. Yeah. I like Madhouse a lot, too. Yeah. The, you know, I mean, I grew up, I'm, I'm 52, so uh, in the late 60s, early 70s was when I dived into horror. Right. And, you know, uh, I the 70s stuff that he did was the first real exposure, but then I went back and... Uh, my favorite writer is Edgar Allan Poe, so all of the Corman stuff yeah. is magnificent. Yeah. Um, it's just beautiful stuff. I mean, and when, when you talk to fans, what are some of the movies that they, they, they talk to you about that they love? Well, I think House on Haunted Hill is one of the most popular yeah. ones. People yeah. love House on Haunted Hill. 
Um, somebody said Madhouse, and, and that really doesn't get said very often. I love Madhouse. I love Pit and the Pendulum, yeah. uh, you know, Tomb of Ligeia, because of the cinematography. That's my favorite of all the Corman Mask movies. of the Red Death. Mask of the Red Death. I think Death. Tomb of Ligeia was my dad's favorite. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a great movie. Yeah. Well, I mean, you, go, you can go back and you can see these movies everywhere now. And I, you mentioned he did 900 uh, episodes of Hollywood Squares. I always say Hollywood Squares paid for my college education. <laughs> <laughs> he was great on Hollywood I Squares. I know, right? He, such, he seemed to be having a blast. A blast. Well, he had a blast. There was nothing he did where he didn't have fun. Yeah. It's been great talking to you. Before you go, uh, I have you, a question. Oh, you yes. have a question. Okay. Hi, Victoria. Hi. But I have one question specifically for you. Okay. Stranger Things 2 is coming out on Halloween. Yep. And they just did a new trailer with your pop's voice happening. Yep. How proud were you to see that they were you're using your dad's voice in that trailer? Well, I would have been prouder if they'd gotten our permission, but yes. <laughs> um, uh, I'll just take back that question. No, don't take back that question. I'm, I'm going to actually really address it seriously. So here's the thing. My dad, it, it's actually sent me on this really interesting... Um, scavenger hunt uh, because they approached us about using my dad's voice and then all of a sudden I'm getting my phones blowing up and everyone's saying here's your dad in this trailer and I'm like what the heck right but the very last minute they got permission from Michael Jackson estate to pull the pull that out of thriller out of context and put it in there right right well, so everybody's calling me and saying, is that okay? Is that legal? Is that, you know, because Quincy Jones just sued the Michael Jackson estate and won a lot of money. And so everybody's calling and asking me this question. So I had to make all these phone calls and I got to hear the whole story of how Thriller was made, which I'm going to share with you guys because it's actually an interesting story. So uh, John Landis, Quincy Jones, and Michael Jackson. Quincy knew my dad because my dad did the Mod Squad, and Peggy Lipton and my dad were great friends, and Peggy is, was Quincy's wife. So they called him up and said, will you do us a little favor? So he goes down, he does this little favor for them. He, he does the rap for Thriller in two takes. That's it, only two takes. And, uh, and they write this little contract. They pay him $5,000 to do Thriller. That's it. That's it? That's it, $5,000. So, and uh, when it becomes the biggest album ever sold, my dad's like, gosh, you know, that seems a little unfair. Is there something we can do about that? And they said, no, not at all. And so my dad was really hurt by that. He felt like he'd lent so much to the album. And, you know, at one point, Michael Jackson brought up, and I'm going to tell this story, which doesn't get told very often. So Michael Jackson heard that my dad was upset, and instead of doing something financially, he sent two guys up to the house. I opened the door, and there were these two guys with life-sized posters of Michael Jackson, and they were the thank you gift. And my dad's like, really? I, I remember bringing them into my dad's bedroom, and he's like, so he literally made an altar with candles and like a shrine to Michael Jackson. And when guests come over, they had to bring like sacrifices to the altar. And they, you know, there were it was there was stuff everywhere. And it was my dad's way of processing it. So he was pissed. But here's what I say: you can't take money with you. And that Thriller album is immortality because as long as there's Halloween, there will be Thriller. And as long as there's Vincent Price and Thriller, I'm happy because every new generation is going to get to hear that laugh. And some of them are going to go, who is that? And what's that about? And they're going to find my dad. So for me, I'm grateful. I'm grateful that it happened, even though it could have happened a little more fairly. <laughs> I'm still really grateful for that immortality because honestly, you cannot listen to Thriller without smiling and laughing. So.
for sure. Thanks for that question, because otherwise we wouldn't have gotten that story. Gloria, <laughs> um, it's such a pleasure to meet you. I'm a big fan. And I oh, really think thank you're great. you. Before, before we let you go, what do you think of Bill Hader's impression of your dad? Oh, I love Bill. <laughs> yeah. I love Bill. So Bill wrote this great intro for something that we did, and I wanted to thank him. And I said, can I send a t-shirt over to Saturday Night Live? And he said, well, next time you're in New York, let's go to lunch. So we went to lunch. And uh, he said, do you think your dad would have liked what I did? And I said, oh my God, he would have loved it. Because, you know, on the Saturday Night Live thing, they're all so, like, everybody's so messed up. You know, every single person on his all show. The guests, yeah. yeah, the guests, yeah, like yeah. Judy Garland and Liberace and James D. It's a disaster, yeah. right? My dad's trying to hold it together. Exactly. Yeah. And I, it might, that was my dad, like with Peter Lorre and Boris Karloff. He was always the peacemaker, right. trying to hold it together. Right. He would have loved it. I'm he would have loved Bill because Bill is such a sweet I'm guy, glad so. to hear that because I yeah. think it's hysterical. He would have loved it. Everybody, Tori Price. I definitely love that uh, Michael Jackson story she told. That was absolutely insane, and so Michael Jackson, if you knew anything about Michael Jackson. The fact that he sent a bunch of pictures and posters He sent of two life-size posters of himself <laughs> as compensation for the additional billion dollars that Thriller made to Vincent Price. And I love that Vincent Price used that as a as a uh, uh, a way to get out his anger he set him up had people give out little little uh, burn candles si- yeah <laughs> sacrifices and shit <laughs> fantastic i that was uh, definitely my favorite panel of the day and that was uh, my favorite panel probably uh from the past few years that i can remember anyway yeah i would say so too it was really it was really neat welcome please feel right at home I want to teach you a game called, amusingly enough, Stay Alive. It's quite deadly. To win, you eliminate your opponents like this. Or they eliminate you. It's great fun. I'd be happy to teach you how to play, but there's no one left. I'm the sole survivor. Stay Alive from Milton Bradley. So, Eric, that pretty much wraps up our flashback weekend adventure. How did we end the We day? walked around, I mean, at the end of the convention. At the end of the George Romero I tried convention, meeting Robert England, but I had to take out a loan. It was just I have no interest in spending 80 to $100 meeting somebody that's not going to remember my name. I just want my gloves signed, damn it. So that's how we pretty much wrapped up the day. And yeah, we walked around the convention another couple times, and it was just... That's when I started getting a little bit more irritated with all the, you know... I started envisioning what could be instead of what was. Yeah. And that's what's more... That's what's frustrating, the potential that these horror conventions can hold. I mean, what would you do, Chris, if you couldn't control the convention? What couple things would you add... Personally, if I can add one brief addition to a horror convention to kind of spice it up a little bit and give it some new life, I'd probably add some interactive seminars. Not to be specific, but like you go to like a comic book convention and they usually have a how to draw comic books, how to independently publish your comic book, portfolio reviews, things like that for aspiring artists, writers. Well, I'd really love if they had the same type of panels or workshops. Whether they're half an hour, 40 minutes, even if you do one a day or something like that with special effects artists, sculptors, things like that if you want to get into more mask making or special effects route or, you know, filmmaking if you want to go a screenwriting route or indie filmmaking, 
anything for those in between, all the way to cosplaying or starting your own business selling horror goods or something, you know, something small like that, hosted by various vendors or accomplished artists, filmmakers, things like that. Just there's there's a lot of missed opportunities, um, and these panels that you speak of, these interactive panels, creative panels, I would go to them. I'm not even an artist or anything like that. I would go to them. Yeah, Absolutely. But you, you would learn, yeah, and just expand your knowledge. I mean, that's what I think these conventions should be about, discovering movies, actors, things that you normally wouldn't just by sitting on the internet or something, you know? Do you, do you remember at C2E2 a few years ago, they did the uh, the singles dating thing? That, that would be something kind of interesting, Can you too, imagine to a do horror? a horror dating yeah. service. I think that'd be kind of interesting. That would be so fun, and for the weekend, you get a little, you get a little date. Yeah, you know? exactly. One thing I would do... Yes. I mean, I'm more, like, theatrical, I guess. So the entrance to this horror convention would be a mini, I'm talking about a minute to two minute, uh, haunted house. The entrance to the actual convention. So you You pay the ticket. You get your ticket going. Then you go to the haunted house. You get your crap skirt out of you. You get excited. You get the blood pumping. You get the heart going. And boom, the ending is the convention. You went through a horror movie to get to the convention. That would be that so sounds perfect. sweet. I don't recall seeing that even. But yeah, I mean, something like that would be so neat, you know? Do that! It's so fun! It's just the atmosphere that's scary. We're, we're not there for the haunted house entrance, we're there for the convention. Just... That's just something extra, it's something to... Wet my whistle, Marcus! Yeah. I think that's an awesome idea. Yeah. Well, well, I'm hoping something changes. Like that I enjoy my time there. It's just that, like you said, we see a lot of missed opportunities. We see a lot of improvements that could be made. And I'm hoping that they eventually realize some opportunities or they create some new opportunities and they maybe get some feedback from fans and we can get a new flashback experience Absolutely. every year. Here's a weird thing. Chicago has a huge supernatural history and there's a lot of uh, companies that focus on that. They do tours, bar crawls. None of that is presented at Flashback Weekend. Why? You have local authors. I almost feel like they're, it's on purpose that it's <laughs> contained. Venture out, expand from just horror movies. Yeah, the I horror mean, genre is more than just horror movies. It's it's Switch it up. I mean, yeah. Even the layout itself needs to be switched up. Get a new hotel. Put this convention on fanbacks for whatever, and I'm sure you'll get money because I would gladly give you 100 bucks. There's a lot of opportunity, and It's Live Podcast would love to see it happen. (laughs) Well, Chris, that seemed a little bit brutal. I'll be honest with you. Yeah, but we said what needed to be said, and we're speaking as fans of the convention. We're saying it out of love. Well, Chris, with that being said, we have a lot of exciting things to look forward to as fans of all things spooky. And one of the things that we're excited about, and that has literally started to flood social media, is Halloween. What are you excited about this Halloween season? What are you, are you going to try to do something different? I'm really looking forward to going to some haunted houses with my girlfriend because she's never been to a haunted house. Really? Absolutely. This is amazing. Yes. We should go to uh, some haunted houses. Yeah, first you got to meet her. 
Well, I don't know why you... I feel like she's not even real. No, it... I don't know, I just... I don't know, you don't ever seem like you want to meet her. What the fuck, Chris? You don't ever seem like you ever want to... When am I going to go see your new apartment, Chris? Whenever. Oh, why don't you invite me? Why do I have to invite you? Because you it's your place. Anytime you want. Oh, let me just find it randomly on a map. Because you don't even tell me what city you live in. You don't need to know. <laughs> See what I mean? This son of a you bitch. You can come over. Well, we're going to do the Halloween bash in our apartment this year. Yeah. Anyways, all right. Get back on track here. What, what was the question? Oh, yeah. So the girlfriend has never been to the a haunted house. So I'm really looking forward to her experiencing terror. <laughs> Beyond terror. So that would be cool. So we can definitely do that together. Take her to some cute ones first. Yeah, I'll take her to some cutie ones. And then murder. Yeah, and then we'll... Her soul. Uh, and then this year, I think you said you were going to host the uh, Halloween Bash. I did. About a minute and a half ago, I announced. I, yeah, well, I figured with the new apartment and stuff, why not? I would love to uh, do that. And we're going to do another shock episode soon. It's my turn, and I'm really nervous. It's your turn, boy. I'm nervous. There's one thing I want to make clear. They're not shock episodes as in like, oh my god, it's so shocking. They're, they're shock episodes because they're a quick jolt, different angle of our, of our podcast. Yeah. So Chris did one that's serial killer related. Mine may be about toys or horror comics. So it's, yeah. not, it's always going to be different. Any subject that we want to talk yeah. about, we're going so, to cover. So it's not. It, don't think that that's going to be the theme is sadness and darkness all the yeah. time. It's not going to be that. And I'll make sure my next sock session is not as sad and dark. Though, it probably will be. We are going to try to cover as much of Halloween and all of its subjects as much as humanly possible. Right, because in Chicago we have tons of spookiness to share. Not like it's like the scumlord of New Jersey or anything. But we're thinking that October 31st on Halloween, that may be our last episode ever. I think that's something cool to build up to. A nice solid uh, send off on a Halloween to you know end our bullshit of this podcast. We'll see what happens. But uh, we're bullshit think- of this podcast. <laughs> this farce. So we're yeah we're thinking this farce will end on the thirty first of October. We'll see. I don't know. But uh, Chris, this has been an interesting <laughs> podcast episode. This has been talking ca- about flashback. Weekend 2017. This is, overall, it's been a negative casserole with a little bit of sprinkled positivity in, but we made sure to sprinkle in some positivity. But we only did it, like I said, out of love. This year, Flashback Weekend was the redhead stepchild of the conventions, and we unmercifully beat it. But when it was crying and a little bloated, we took it and we said, you know, we love you. We love you. It's, It's out of love. It's all out of love. So as always, you have many ways to contact the It's Alive podcast for any reasons. You got some good horror conventions in your area you maybe want to tell us about. We're definitely up for traveling to some other horror conventions to get some other tastes. Don't say that. How are we going to afford these things? Just don't question it. You can always shoot us an email at itsalivepod at gmail.com or hit us up on Twitter. That's Twitter at It's Alive Pod. At It's Alive Pod is our Twitter handle. At It's Alive Pod. How else can they contact us there? Well, we're also on Facebook. It's Live Pod's Facebook page. Yeah, you know, just email us, contact us, engage with us. And uh, what we're going to do is if anybody emails us, Chris, what's your email? 
itsalivepod at gmail.com. If anybody emails us with their best horror convention experience or what they would like to see at a horror convention, I, Eric, a.k.a. Sad Dracula, will send you a sticker of It's Live Podcast, a postcard, and also a VHS from my collection. Straight to you. Paid for shipping and all that shit. I will send it to you as a little gift package. It's Live Podcast's first giveaway that no one will get because no one will respond. All right, everybody. The offer stands until next episode. Until then... We hope you have a spectacular time as Halloween creeps towards us. And as always, closing out the It's Alive podcast, this is Creepy Chris. This is Eerie Eric, a.k.a. Sad Dracula. And we want you to know at SummerSlam, we're coming for those titles. We're going to that smell hole, New Jersey. And we're taking it from you. We're gonna snatch it right from your dead fingers. Thank you.